It was Britain's worst military defeat of the era. The first Anglo-Boer War of 1880-81 fought in what is now modern South Africa. I'm currently drawing towards the end of a short season of episodes looking at this war. And today I'm joined again by the legendary Professor John LeBand to learn a little bit about the British commander during the war, the man who, despite being an incredibly well-educated soldier, managed to lead his Redcoats to defeat after defeat, Major General Sir George Pomeroy Colley. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History YouTube and podcast channel, the place for military history geeks. Here I try and post something new every two weeks, so be sure to subscribe for more. Today's guest, John LeBand, has written numerous books that cover the First Anglo-Boer War, aka the Transvaal Rebellion. If you'd like a discount code for a couple of his brilliant works about the war, then please see the description and links below. John kicked off today's chat by explaining George Pomeroy Colley's background. His father was a naval officer and the son of Viscount Harberton. So, so Colley comes from the aristocracy. Um, and the family name was actually Pomeroy. But our Colley's father, when inheriting the estate of his grandmother, did as so often happened, inherited the estate on the understanding he changed his surname. So that's how the Pomeroy Colleys became... <laughs> The Pomeroys became collies, so we have Sir George Pomeroy Pomeroy Collie for for that particular reason. Anyway, but that's just um, a bit of British stuff, as they say. He went um, he went to Sandhurst, um, where he came out top of the class, and because of that, he didn't have to buy his commission because this is still commissions were still being sold until 1871. He got he got his first commission without having to pay for it, which happened to particularly bright. Um, young officers. He then went off and served in the Cape in 1854 for a little while, and then off in the Second Anglo-Chinese War in 1860. So he did all of that, saw, saw some action. He then went to, to, um, to, um, to Staff College, and it was at Staff College that he, well, absolutely brilliant record. He finished in half the normal time, with the highest marks ever recorded at Staff College. That's very so, impressive. That is very impressive. So that was followed by various academic posts in, in the military at Sandhurst and, and so on, and, and at Staff College um, as a professor of tactics and this kind of thing. So he did that. Then, um, and this is where his career changed, he was recruited by Sir Garnet Wolseley. Now, Wolsey, with his the very model of a modern major general with his idea of, you know, a, a very intelligent, well-trained staff, highly professional, all the rest of it, went off to fight in the Asante War. And he recruited Pomeroy onto his staff to go with him, where Pomeroy did very well with the did, This would have been the in the Ghana area, is that right? This is right. It's, it's, now, it's, now, it's now Ghana, yeah. And it's, it's um, yeah, 1873-74. And... What happened to Colley? He now became part of Wolseley's ring. He's a Sante ring, or self-admiration society, as other other <laughs> other soldiers like to call it. There, there are various rings in the army. Um, there's Roberts's ring in India. There's Wolsey's ring. There's the Duke of Cambridge's more conservative ring. There are all these competing rings, which is one reason, in fact, you don't get concerted um, doctrine in the army because you have all these rings competing 
in terms of how things should be done. So that was one of the problems with the army. Anyway, Colley is now part of Wolsey's ring. Um, he then goes off with Wolsey in 1875 to Natal. Um, Wolsey is sent out to Natal in 1875 as part of the Confederation project to try and bully Natal into accepting the idea of Confederation. So Collie is there, so he now sees Natal, he knows the area, he's now quite familiar with it. He then goes off to India, where Lord Lytton is there, the Viceroy. Um, he gets onto his staff, his, his private secretary, in fact. Um, so he's in India. Then he goes back to um, South Africa with Wolsey. When Wolsey supersedes Chelmsford in command of the Anglo-Zulu War, Colley goes out with, with Wolsey as his chief of staff. Um, and he then goes back to India after that. Um, and it's while he's in India, in fact, um, that he is finally recruited as to take Wolsey's place in South Africa as as High Commissioner of Southeast Africa and Governor of Natal and Governor of the Transvaal and Commander in Chief of the troops in that area. So, so he's job. had this long, a big job. He's had this long career, which is mainly as an administrative soldier. He's never commanded troops in the field. He's a brilliant guy. He knows what should be done. Um, but there it is. He has no, not much practical experience in running a war. Also, as far as the locals in Natal were concerned when he arrived. They they wondered a bit about him. I mean, he played the Baroque flute. Is this what? And he he, he was a bird watcher, um, doing things which, <laughs> as far as the, the colonists were concerned, made them worry a bit about this guy's abilities as a soldier with these sort of extraordinary, <laughs> you know, offline hobbies. You know, <laughs> although the the samurai probably would have appreciated that with their. <laughs> with their balancing of warrior attributes and art, oh, but maybe no, not the Afrikaners I mean, so much. No. Well, even Chelmsford in the Anglo-Zulu War, he was very good on the clarinet, as it so happened. But, you know, I mean, these officers were, had these had these skills, but it's this lack of practical experience, which I think is part of Cardi's problem, never having led troops in the field. And was he well-liked? Yes, he was. Um, he, he, I mean, he was... Well, one of his problems, I mean, at Majuba, for example, one reason they didn't entrench, he was so concerned about his troops being overtired after the mountain climb over the night, they wanted them to have a rest. You know, he didn't want to sort of push them too hard. Um, so, yes, he, he was very liked, um, you know, and he was clever, liked, amiable. Um, he um, he had married quite, quite shortly before he came to South Africa. The... Uh, daughter of General Tiger, uh, Tiger Hamilton. Um, she was she was quite tough, one, one gathers, and many people believe that she sort of pushed him, you know, sort of, come on, go on, do it, etc., etc. From the private correspondence, I don't think so. I think it's a very sort of happy kind of marriage, but the feeling was that you've got Collie who's watching birds and his wife's telling him what to do. That was sort of the impression that, um, you know, that surrounded him, in fact. With the outbreak of war, Collie was soon in trouble. He lost a series of battles along the border between Natal and the Transvaal, including the battles at Lang's Neck and Ingogo. These defeats really affected the morale of the men and the confidence of Collie himself. No, I mean, the morale was very low. I mean, about a third of the force had been killed or was ill by this stage. 
Um, but the reinforcements were arriving. You see, I mean, when you look at when you look at um, the people involved in Majuba, I mean, half of them were reinforcements. They weren't the original people who had, um, well, the the 60th red, the 60th rifles, and the 58th had been at Lang's Neck. But the 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 Gordon Highlanders, the 92nd, the the 15th Hussars, and others, these were all part of the reinforcements. So it is already a, a you know you've you've had this injection of blood. Um, you know that the forces are building up at Newcastle more and more. So so yeah, demoralized as you are to an extent, there is a sense that help is on the way and that you know, you'll be able to do it. So I think this perhaps is the attitude among the rank and file, if you like. What Collie was quite thinking about is perhaps something else, something much more personal in, in a sense, reputations to be regained. Yeah. And what was Collie's big plan then? What did he hope to achieve with the Battle of Majuba? Yeah. You know, the trouble is he kept it very quiet. Um, um, Colonel Stewart, his chief of staff, he told him about it. He knew about it. And other officers, he simply told them on a need-to-know basis, you know. So so there is no real um, clear sort of, you know, set of orders laying out just what was absolutely intended. Um, we know that he wrote to his wife, left, um, left her a letter um, when he went up, uh, a rather sort of moving letter, but basically saying, this is a gamble. Life is a gamble. I'm playing I'm playing the last card, you know. Um, so he saw it as such. I mean, he was determined to get his reputation back. And look, if you think of someone like Lord Chelmsford, huge disaster at St. Luana, he then wins the Battle of Alundi. In fact, after he'd been superseded, but nonetheless, he ignores, ignores instructions, goes ahead, wins the Battle of Alundi, and it does resuscitate his reputation to an extent anyway. He can go back as, as the victor and not the complete loser. And I think, as far as Collie is concerned, if he had one success in the field, this at least would well, rescue some of his reputation. This was the idea. And, that, and, and this, this was the throw. I mean, the throw, the throw, the throw, the gamble of the gambler. I mean, in his own words, this, this is what he intended. I mean, just what he hoped to get or do, how he hoped, what he hoped Majuba would actually do is another matter. But the intention of winning a battle was, was what he was after. Yeah. And tactically, what, what was his plan? <laughs> well, well, may we ask? Um, no, his idea was basically Majuba overlooked the whole Boer position from the West. If you're on top of Majuba, presumably you and then enfiladed, you turned the, the Boer position, um, and they, and they might, might retreat. In fact, in the initial panic in the Boer camp, when they saw the British on top of the mountain, many started getting into their wag wagons and galloping off, and Collie was able to report, good, the Boers are in their wagons, they're there, they're going. You know, this has had the effect. But, but it's not going to really work like that. Um, it would have been more useful if you'd taken artillery up, but he didn't have mules, he didn't have, and the mountain guns, which you take apart, as you know, um, he could have got those seven-pounders up there, but he didn't do it, lack of, lack of, uh, say, um, of, of livestock to actually take them up the mountain very steep, he decided not to do it. 
if it sent off another attack from Mount Prospect, the camp, that would have been very different. The Boers expected that. They expected an attack from the camp to coordinate with this flanking position on Majuba. That's what they expected. It's only in the course of the day when they saw the camp wasn't moving that they could deploy all their men to retake Majuba and not actually hold Lang's neck. So that that was a mistake. Um, I mean, I think Collie's plan was to take Majuba, to hold it, and to wait for the reinforcements to come up, by which stage the Boers probably would decide too strong in front of Lang's neck, we are outflanked anyway, we will just retire. That, I think, was the idea. But um, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> and yeah. one, of the, one of the things Collie's been criticised for subsequently was the fact that he took this kind of mixed bag of troops with him. It, it wasn't yeah. like he mm. just took, you know, the 92nd or he just took the yeah. rifles. He kind of yeah. picked companies from different units. So, yeah. so we had this hodgepodge where no one really knew each other and there was no cohesion. Mm. What was the thinking yeah. behind that? Do we know? I think I think the thinking was he was giving, certainly as far as the 58th and the and and the and the, and the rifles are concerned, a chance to redeem their reputation. So he wanted them to be part of the action as such. Um, and I think he simply wanted to use then the best troops available. I mean, look, the Gordon Highlanders—they've been fighting in Afghanistan. There were mountain troops as such, or should have been. And they were, they were really good and the naval brigade he took up as well well the naval brigade was certainly part of it they were very good troops i think so he wanted a combination of good troops and um some of these um short service regiments that he was worried about who you know hadn't done so well to give them a chance to redeem themselves i think also the problem getting up the mountain there's a lot loss of cohesion scrambling up this mountain hours in the dark that when you start taking up position, people are mixed up. The, the units aren't as um, uh, cohesive as you'd have liked. And, you know, there's another point. If I'm thinking of small group cohesion and that kind of thing, when you man the perimeter, you're doing it at 15 pace intervals. These guys, you, your your buddy is, you know, way over to your right or your left. I mean, it's a long it's, way. It's, um, it's a long, it's a long way. I mean, so, so you've got this really extended skirmishing line. Already, your buddy to your left might not be your friend, you know, but somebody else from another unit altogether. Um, yep. So, so, so it is, it is problematic. And I think, you know, when you get to the top of the mountain, you think the ridge that goes through it, you think that's the edge of the mountain, and only in the morning you realise you've actually only manned half the mountain. That you've got to extend right you know, to, to, to the northwest to take, to follow the whole brow of the mountain and not just as ridge along the middle. So, so there is this great mixture of troops and, but I think, you know, overconfidence comes into it as well. Um, we've talked about no shelter trenches being dug, or at least very few. I mean, some of the Naval Brigade did, a few other units started throwing up some sort of barricades, but generally there's this feeling, here we are, you know, and and when a few troops let off shots early in the morning, which alerted the Boers, the British were there, Collie didn't mind them because he was on top. You know, it was, they had no expectation that um, anything would happen. Um, but here's the other line. They didn't scout the mountain. I mean, that north face of the mountain, much of it is dead ground. That is the problem. Much of it is dead ground. 
and they never sort of sent out scouts, never sent out patrols, getting a sense of the terrain. So they had no idea that the Boers, in fact, would be able to get up half that mountain without being seen at all. You know, so yeah. so that's another dereliction. Yeah. I mean, I looking mean, for, I... for the professor of tactics is not doing very well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems there was some, you know, to use modern terminology, some schoolboy errors were uh, were made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's overconfidence, um, and you know, I mean, we know the colleague just went to sleep in the middle of it all. I mean, you know, literally. I mean, he was literally, yeah, yeah. You know, at his headquarters near 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 the um, near near the hospital. I mean, he had a sleep, and in fact, when. Um, that very crucial pinnacle on the north side, um, um, Gordon's Coffee was 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 being attacked, and and Lieutenant Lieutenant Hamilton, you know, of later fame in the Boer War and the Dardanelles, or not so much fame in the Dardanelles, but you know mm. what I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, three times he sort of, you know, crawled back under fire to say to Chelsea, listen, to, oh, no, sorry, to 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 Collie, look what is going on. Collie said, no, 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 well, I'll send you five men or this or that, you know. I mean, um, it's just underestimation, which you'd have thought after Broncos sprayed Lung's neck and Ngogo, that you wouldn't be underestimating these guys for a moment. In my last YouTube video two weeks ago, I actually walked the battlefield of Majuba and explored the topography and the reason that the British were able to lose such a strong position. But what's John's explanation? The Boers are there. There's there's open ground. There's a flat. There's a flat bit of ground there, but the Boers were able, with covering fire, the small British garrison on top of the coffee, their heads were down, and the Boers were able to gallop across this, you know, make a dash for it and get to the bottom of it, and then swarm up. And I mean, this happened in other places as well. So the Boers, with all this covering fire, um, in their skirmishing tactics, were able simply to get right up to the British positions without being picked off. You know, um, and the British were sort of undercover the whole time. And once they were, their flank was turned, um, then then they begin to fall back. And that's that's the nature of the rest of the battle. Again and again, their flank is turned as um, like Gordon's coffee is taken, McDonald's coffee is taken, Hayes coffee is taken. One after another, this enfilades the various lines of defenders until they totally lose all cohesion and panic and galloping down the mountain you know and and collie himself is killed what can you tell us about his death ah well i mean there story after story after story i mean you know um did he shoot himself that is one of the things no um wood actually went so far as sending lady collie um collie's helmet with a bullet hole in it which went above his eye and sort of out of the bottom saying listen you know this proves you know he was he has died facing the foe. and Only a Victorian was, would think that was a good idea. Yeah, and she simply said, all I know about him, you know, his courage was such, all he had was an excess of courage, so don't bother to send me stuff like this. I know he'd have died facing the foe. Um, so ideas that he'd shot himself, ideas that he'd done this, the, this talk he was shot while trying to surrender with a handkerchief, you know, carried on his sword and, stories of a young boy of 12 sort of shooting him down at close range. We don't actually know. All we know is, like most of the soldiers who were killed, he was shot through the head, you know, and and probably at that stage um, trying to stem the retreat. I mean, he was heard to sort of 
mumble, oh, my men, do not run, you know, um, you know, um, trying to stop the retreat, um, waving his pistol, um, his revolver, rather, um, you know, but, but it, all, it all got away from him, and he was standing up um, and, and, was, and was shot down, and I mean, that's, that's all we know, wearing his tennis shoes. Oh, really, was he? I hadn't picked up on that little bit of uh, information. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. He changed his boots for tennis shoes in the Victorian era. They had vulcanized soles with um, canvas and leather uppers, highly sort of chased leather and all the rest of it. So rather fancy little shoes. So he had these for his mountain climbing. So, so he's there in all his uniform and his, and his you know, tennis shoes on. <laughs> rather odd. <laughs> So there you have it, guys. Collie was a precocious talent, but when it came to the crunch, he just seemed incapable of winning battles. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe and leave me a review as it really helps others to find the channel. You can also subscribe to my mailing list by visiting redcoathistory.com. If you join the newsletter there, you actually get a free ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War, which I wrote a couple of years ago. All right, guys, take care. I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks.